Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to a very special edition of This Week in Doom, featuring my co-host, the one and only green chicken himself, Doomberg. Hi, mate. How are you? Great. I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, very, very well. Very excited for this conversation, I have to say. We have three guests joining us shortly, um, each of whom is brilliant in their own right. And um, Well, I say three guests, one of them is you. <laughs> <laughs> but each of whom is brilliant in their own right. We are being joined by our mutual friend, Luke Groman uh, of Forest for the Trees, and also the brilliant Marco Papich of Clock Tower Group out in Santa Monica. And the genesis of this has been an awful lot of back and forth that we've seen on Twitter and in the media and on FinTwit, all about Europe and the insane energy policies going on um, over there, something about which you've written so brilliantly a couple of times in recent months. So, um, you know, it, it just felt like it was time to try and get three very diverse opinions together and, and see if we can thrash out some semblance of what the hell's going on, Dumi. Yeah, no, it was a really fantastic discussion and a unique form. And uh, as you say, you know, Marco sort of had a, a different viewpoint that perhaps the top was in as far as the, the crisis in Europe. And then on the sort of more Doomy side was me. And I would put uh, Luke sort of closer to Doomberg, but still on the side of uh, more pain to come uh, for Europe. But it was um, a classic example of I think uh, intelligent people agreeing polite, uh, disagreeing politely, and um, and making some solid points. And uh, you, as always, were a fantastic host and, and doing what you do with uh, your excellent interviewing skills. So I'm sure the audience is really going to enjoy this conversation, which uh, went on for two hours. It felt like 15 minutes, and uh, unfortunately, yeah. also because of some technical challenges, did end abruptly uh, as we were having our, our our mutual friend Sir Stephen Wilkinson join the party as well. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a. Uh... It was it was a fascinating conversation. There was so much really, really insightful information thrown out that it had me rethinking a lot of things yet again. And I think your point's right. You know, there was plenty of disagreement. But, you know, I loved the fact, well, I'd love to hear you and Marco going backwards and forwards on stuff, as you say, right, respectfully, and, and each of you understanding that there's a weight of intellect behind the other's argument, but choosing to disagree with parts of it. And I think that's one of the places that people can get the most from is to hear someone like you disagreeing with Marco Papic is it's just heaven for anybody who's who really wants to try and understand things it was it was just it was a fantastic conversation all of it indeed and it's very privileged to be part of it and uh, you know without further ado let's uh, let's let the audience um, have at it let's do it welcome everybody um, what what I want to do is try and get um, some opening views from all three of uh, the main speakers and then we'll we'll kind of start kicking things around and see where the conversation Takes us and Luke, if I can, mate, I want to start with you because um, you know a lot of a lot of what we're seeing here is stuff that you've been writing about in Forest for the Trees for quite some considerable amount of time. And when I first came across your work, gosh, eight years ago, I guess now, um, it really hit me like a bolt out of the blue. Some of the things you were talking about, and and I've followed you avidly ever since. And a lot of the things you've been saying are so off the beaten track. And you know you've taken a lot of heat for them over the years. I know you have, and it's it's been it's been fascinating to watch you um, 
stick to what you do, which is do the research and, and think these things through and try and think several steps down the line. So um, why don't you give us uh, your sense of what's unfolding here and the various kind of threads that are being pulled in different directions? Sure, I'll, I'll keep it brief. I think what we've been watching unfold is a recognition amongst parts of the world uh, post the great financial crisis that uh, a change needed to be done to the energy uh, system, if you will, uh, from the standpoint that uh, energy exporters selling oil and then storing those surpluses in sovereign debt that was negative yielding relative to that oil. Uh, in other words, oil price goes up 8% a year and the yield on the debt's only one or two. Uh, that is not economically sustainable. And uh, I think the certain producers saw that, uh, aka Russia. And I think certain oil consumers saw that same thing, uh, i.e. China, uh, amongst others. And I think some, I think this is a two of the big gears that are driving some of the tensions we're seeing today. I ultimately, when we go back to the to the uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine back in March, uh, you know, Grant, you and I got on a podcast and talked for a while back in March, and there were really three key things that inform my view of how things would unfold. And I think empirically, we've seen that these have all, I would say, aged fairly well. So the first was that. The world could not survive uh, economically if you subtracted Russia's oil and gas from the mix. I think we're watching that prove true in real time. Uh, number two, if the West wanted its dollar sanctions to work, it needed to keep China in particular, but also India, uh, inside the tent pissing out, if you will. And they were unable to do that, obviously. And then number three, that the Western sovereign debt position in particular meant that the West's sensitivity to rising energy prices would be much greater. It basically, I think we called it at the time, it, it, it boiled down to a balance sheet contest. And the problem was that Russia had by far a better balance sheet than basically everybody in the West. And so I think these three things have, I think they were true in March. I think empirically we've seen the impacts of these three things being true since. And I think that's, Probably a good place for me to stop and and go on pause and and you know kick kick it off to uh, to the next speaker. Yeah, look, thanks for that. That's great, and, and and we'll definitely come back and pick a lot of that stuff apart because you say it's kind of played out in real time. M Marco, I'm going to come on to you next. Um, uh, you know, your work at Clock Tower again is is just tremendous, and I've uh, you know I've been fortunate enough in the last couple of months to spend a day with you out there talking about the world as you see it, and that conversation you had me start to rethink a lot of my thoughts around Europe, um, where its particular fragilities were, and and how European politicians are being forced to think about this stuff. So perhaps I could get your um, your take on this, but but with particular reference, and perhaps you could lay this out first for people that aren't familiar with it, you know, your constraints and preferences framework, um, for me, was one of those light bulb moments. Um, so I, I'd love you, I don't want to steal your thunder, so I'd love you to just to, to walk people through that as a kind of as a prologue to, to getting your views on this current situation in Europe. Super. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Thanks to Doomberg and Luke as well. Great to be here. Um, so I want to talk about um, a couple of things. First of all, in terms of the framework, you know, um, I've been working on this framework for a while uh, 
back at BCA Research and now. I mean, how do we incorporate politics and geopolitics into finance without relying on voodoo? Um, and sometimes voodoo is relevant and necessary. I mean, to be clear, sometimes you do need it. Um, but I think the way to be systematic is really to think about the material constraints that forces policymakers into the political path of least resistance. Um, and that's not a path they want to go. It's not a path that they voice to their voters or they voice, voice in speeches. It's just what's going to force them. It's, it's where they have to go. So a lot of I think a lot of folks out there who are extrapolating these prices, these energy prices into the future, assume that policymakers will have to stick to the ESG agenda or stick to the, you know, Russian sanction agenda. And my point to, you know, those investors is, you know, beware of those linear extrapolations. So I think that um, my take on this crisis is that uh, this crisis is not a question of costs. It's not a question of math. It is a question of political will and geopolitics. So we need to answer three questions in order to ascertain if the current electricity and natural gas price trajectory is sustainable. And I do not think it is. The first is the trajectory of the war in Ukraine. So if the war remains bogged down in Donetsk and Luhansk, the rationality behind both the Russian natural gas cutoff and the European sanctions is reduced. The rationality falls apart. And remember, the oil embargo and the high-tech export restrictions were all part of the initial response to Moscow's invasion of all of Ukraine, particularly the goal of conquering Kiev. Now that the Moscow's uh, ambitions have been basically curtailed by a whole slew of factors, including their own incompetence, the situation on the ground has really changed. So if the current status quo continues... I think both the willingness of Moscow to keep not making $55 billion a year from natural gas sales to Europe and Europe's willingness to incur high electricity prices, both of those diminish at the same time. And by the way, I know the important side note here is the ongoing offensive in Kherson. Obviously, if Ukraine is wildly successful, uh, that's actually a problem for Europe. And for my thesis is then Russia would have to retaliate in some way, shape or form. And I, I just personally don't have much optimism for Ukraine's offensive capabilities. We can talk about that on the side. The second issue we have to gauge is political will in Europe. So the desire of European public to bear the high costs of war in Ukraine. This is not a binary issue. Again, the first point is important. If the war is bogged down in Donbass, the West Virginia of Europe, basically, and no offense to the Montenegro state, but, you know, I mean, in terms of coal production, like, no one's going to care. European willingness to maintain high cost of electricity prices for the sake of Donbass is like non-existent. For Kiev, it's a different issue. Now, polling does indicate that the plurality of Italians and Germans basically want the war to end at almost any cost. So I think that the current policy is unsustainable. But on the other hand, people aren't yet protesting the tr in the streets, partly because the support for the euro area and for European integration is actually at an all-time high. So, you know, there is too much bearishness out there when people say this will lead to the collapse of the euro. It, there, there's no evidence of that. Euro is not a mathematical construct. It's a political project. The final issue I would say is, is there willingness for Europe to compensate costs? Now, I've done some math on this. It's very much back of the envelope. You know, like you can drive uh, an aircraft carrier through my assumptions. But using the UK price cap as, as a baseline, and extrapolating that price cap to the households in all of Europe, basically what I come up with is that if the cost of electricity in Europe were to double, 
over the next six months, it will basically cost Europe about 500 billion euros to compensate households for that increase. Sounds a lot, right? But it isn't. That's how much basically Europe spends on bailing out peripheral member states during the your debt crisis. In other words, if there's political desire, they will figure it out. And that's why I do think that when we think about the game of chicken between Russia and Europe, Europe actually has a lot going for it. It has the political willingness for the European project. It's still there. It has the ability to subsidize for at least the next six months an ex- extreme increase in prices. It has alternative sources of natural gas. I mean, that's why they filled storage, because the flows did not fall. Even as Russia cut off gas, they found alternatives in the LNG market. And all of this means that as Russia and Europe face each other in a game of chicken, at some point, Russians are going to have to swerve, you know, because their gambit failed. And at some point, you got to ask yourself, is it rational to keep losing 50 billion euros for what? You don't have alternative demand, sources of demand. You ship your gas with pipelines. And by 2024, there will be 80 BCM more of LNG on the market due to the construction of export terminals that are currently going on. Not new ones that take two to three years, but currently going on. So Russia has a limited period of time in which to make money off of Europe. And I think the day will fold. I think that eventually they're going to say, okay, fine, give us high-tech exports in exchange for natural gas. And by the way, why do I say that? Because Russian policymakers keep saying they can't ship natural gas through Nord Stream because of high-tech export sanctions. I think that's what they want Europe to change. And I think eventually over the next six months, Europeans will give that to them. Why is high tech so important for Russians? It's not really the war in Ukraine. You know, getting some chips is not going to solve the fact that they can't fight a war. They need it to keep our flot flying. And, you know, if you can't deliver policymakers, technocrats, law enforcement officials to Omsk and Vladivostok, like your country will fall apart. Uh, and I think that's that's going to be eventually the way this situation is resolved. But there's, there's there's so much in there I want to dig into. But um, but before before we we'll come back to that, you know, you mentioned a game of chicken, and who better to jump in at that particular point uh, than Doomberg? You know, Doomy, you've you've written on your Substack um, some phenomenal stuff about the energy complex, um, including natural gas and LNG. Um, so let's let's before we kick this around between the three of you, let's let's get your take on on where we stand because I'm I know a lot of the things you've been thinking about and I and I know they're going to be some of them are going to be in conflict, some of them are going to be aligned with everything that Luke and uh, Mark have said. So um, have at it, my feathered friend. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. And uh, obviously, I want to begin by thanking you for putting this together and um, what a privilege it is to participate with Luke and Marco uh, in a space uh, hosted by you. It's really phenomenal and. Um, Luke, a big fan of your work, as you know, and loyal subscriber to the Tree Rings. And uh, first thing I'm going to do after this space is, is read your Friday edition that comes out. I look forward to it every week. And um, Marco, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview that you did with Grant for his gold tier. It was um, three hours of really insightful knowledge. I learned a ton and, and um, bought your book, uh, Geopolitical Alpha, as a part of it. And, and anybody listening who hasn't yet bought and read that book, um, should certainly do so. Um, so I, in a way, I, whenever I try to sort of engage in a debate with somebody, the first thing I, I think about is what is it that I agree with them about? Um, so I would agree with a lot of what Marco just said. Um, I think that uh, Putin, uh, by invading Ukraine, um, made a disastrous mistake. And I think in the medium to long term, 
um, it is a potentially fatal mistake uh, to his uh, hold on leadership in Russia. And it will be uh, in the medium to long term incredibly damaging um, to Russia's standing in the world and to Putin's um, grip on power. Um, and so I, I agree with that. Um, in the short term, I think it's an entirely different story. And I will start my comments with um, recapping what has transpired just in the past 10 days. Um, I think a little over a week ago, uh, Gazprom announced that they were going to take uh, Nord Stream 1 down for, quote, three days um, because of maintenance. And um, the price of natural gas in Europe skyrocketed. Uh, there was panic in the market, and it touched um, $100 per million BTU, which is an insane price. Um, and just to benchmark everybody, natural gas in the U.S. was as low as $2 per million BTU 18 months ago and trades for just, just $9 per million BTU today. And $100 million BTU is, is the energy equivalent of $600 a barrel gas. Um, and then um, we heard in the last 48 hours that Gazprom um, had decided that it would um, renominate uh, for supply. And we saw uh, over the past three or four days a collapse in the price of natural gas. And um, as we close today, before the latest headline that Gazprom is basically going to shut down Nord Stream 1 indefinitely because of um, the high-tech issues that Marco just alluded to, um, it closed today at $60 per million BTU. So we saw a $40 swing in natural gas um, based on the whims of one man, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I tweeted this earlier this week. Um, as we ponder whether uh, or fret about whether um, the gas will get turned back on, ask yourself this question, who's doing the worrying and who is doing the deciding? So um, we've been flagging this issue for more than a year um, on our Substack, as you know, Grant. And um, we have temporarily, in the short term, um, handed uh, Vladimir Putin enormous leverage in the energy market. Um, he has you know, blundered by overplaying his hand, and his military has underperformed, thankfully. Um, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have any cards left to play in the next 12 to 18 months. And um, we are staring at what we've been characterizing as the single most important geopolitical event to unfold uh, in the world right now, which is how Western Europe will get through the winter of 2022, 2023. Um, I, I have no doubt, um, and we here uh, at Doomberg have no doubt that um, by 2025, um, the cure for high prices will arrive, um, but it's going to take until 2024, 2025 um, for that to, to happen. And then I'll just close my opening comments with one um, observation about flows and storage. And, um, you know, um, there are many on Twitter um, who are pointing to the relatively elevated storage levels uh, in Germany and in the broader EU as, um, as somehow a proof point um, that the winter is going to be fine. And there's a, a critically important um, variable that, that many are missing in this analysis, which is as follows. Um, storage is always and uh, only meant to be a supplement to uh, incoming supplies via pipeline. And now, of course, uh, LNG. And why is that? Um, it turns out there's a constraint to how much uh, gas you can pull out on any particular day. Um, and this is just a natural constraint based on the storage um, characteristics of the various facilities. It's difficult to model. But um, if, for example, at the dead of winter in December, January, and early February, Europe was forced to rely exclusively on um, storage and LNG, it, it would not make it. The, the, as you know, to heat your homes uh, and to uh, create electricity, this is sort of just-in-time inventory management. And the demand for natural gas on any particular day um, will exceed the maximum daily 
quantity that can be withdrawn from storage. And so storage, uh, while it is seductive to look at the amount that you have in storage divided by the amount that you use in season, it is uh, ignoring a critically important factor, which is the daily maximum that you can draw from storage um, versus the daily maximum demand that peaks well above that number um, during winter. And while that's a difficult number for us to understand and model, I can assure you that there is one man who, don't, who knows those numbers very well, and that man is Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so I'll, I'll close by saying um, we have handed him enormous leverage. Um, we have a very chronic short-term problem. I don't think it does anybody any favors to minimize the nature of that problem. Um, and, and, you know, I, I might have missed the chapter in, in Sun Tzu's Art of War where he says, you know, hand all the leverage to your enemy and then complain about when he uses it. Um, Putin has enormous leverage in the short term. It's critically important that we recognize that and get deadly serious about dissipating that leverage in every way possible. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Brent. Thanks, mate. Um, well, listen, I, I'm going to try and move this around the three of you, but um, you know, I, I really very much want this to be a free-flowing discussion, guys. So if, if any of you want to address any of the points, then you know, feel free to dive in. But um, for now, Mark, I want to come back to you um, and just talk about this this political will in Europe because you 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 have such a good handle on it, and it's 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 a very different view to I think a lot of the mainstream press as to as to how Europe is going to hold together in political will. Now we've seen. In the last few days, or last couple of weeks, rather, we've seen the Germans um, nibbling at this U-turn on nuclear energy. So there seems to be a, a kind of a folding of political will towards necessity there. We've seen Schultz making a couple of statements today. I saw headlines talking about how you know completely shutting off uh, or refusing to buy Russian gas supplies was not a smart move in the long term. So there seems to be a little bit of um, let's call it flexibility there. Do you see any shift? in the European political will vis-a-vis Russia. We'll get on to the European project will um, a little bit later, I think. Okay, well, before I answer the question, Grant, on political will, I have a question for Doomberg. Because in in your uh, analysis right now, you snuck in the term and LNG. But that's obviously not correct. We cannot forecast LNG flows into Europe, but they were clearly, they clearly surprised everyone over the past six months. So when you say that Europe cannot survive the winter in storage alone, that's obviously a fact. But if the flows, non-Russian flows, uh, remain where they were over the past six months, then they're fine. And, and I say that because, look, the fact of the matter is this. Russian exports of natural gas to Europe are down 70% in the year. I mean, they should be down 100% in the year if Putin was actually intelligent and he shot off gas in February, but he didn't. So they're down 70%. But total imports are down 5%. In other words, Europe has found alternative to natural gas from Russia almost fully. And that's why the storage numbers are important. They're important not because storage matters or saves them, as you eloquently point out, it doesn't. It's more important as a manifestation of Europe's ability to find natural gas from outside of Russia, granted at much higher costs. So going forward, let's stop debating whether storage matters. What matters is can they sustain the import levels that they have already managed to get? Higher cost for sure. But that's an important point in the kind of like a game of chicken vis-a-vis Putin. And I don't, I, 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 I don't obviously know. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not in the Kremlin. But like I guarantee you 
as much as I know about geopolitics, that he was shocked by the ability of Europe to maintain those flows of non-Russian gas. So why would those collapse? And or rather, let me ask you this. If they maintain the current pace of importing LNG over the next six months, what happens to Europe? Again, it all depends on maximum demand at the dead of winter. <clears throat> and so what we're seeing right now is um, we're in the summer um, and um, the demand is such that it's manageable. There, there is some um, um, demand management that's going on right now, although I think it's less than it needs to be. Um, others have um, analyzed and we have read um, their analysis and we, we think that um, in order to get through the winter at the current pace of LNG, the demand destruction for natural gas, assuming, by the way, everything else goes well, um, as in the nuclear runs well, coal arrives, um, you can move the coal around and get it to the power plants, um, they probably need to cut demand to 20 to 25% uh, level versus the 10 to 12% level that they've been able to cut right now, uh, which is measured against the 15% sort of agreed upon cut across um, the European Union. So if you're a, 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 a consumer of natural gas in the winter, um, and so I want to clarify what I said, because I, I, I don't think that um, perhaps it was as clear as it could have been. Um, on December 28th, um, and you need um, X amount of natural gas, you have three places from which you can tap that natural gas. You can tap it from um, pipelines, like um, you know, from Russia, for example. Um, you could tap it from an LNG, uh, a ship who might be docked and, and offloading at an import terminal, uh, or you could draw from storage. Um, and I, our argument, our belief, uh, and I think the data shows, um, that if the flows from, Europe, uh, from Russia are zero on that day, which they could be, um, that the combination of storage plus LNG will be insufficient to meet the daily needs. Um, so by definition, if they are well ahead of their storage um, uh, objectives, which they are, and I'm happy that they are, um, then that means that the uh, increment of uh, LNG coming in is being put towards storage, which is great. Um, but I think at the dead of winter, there's a reason why Ford electricity prices um, skyrocketed the way they did, even though they've come down. Um, there's a reason why uh, uh, Dutch CTF um, skyrocketed the way it did, because the market is sending a very strong signal um, that there is going to be a severe crunch this winter. Um, now, um, I would be interested to know um, the alternative uh, explanation for the wackiness in the energy markets that we saw this week. Um, but I, by my view, the market is signaling that um, despite all of the cuts and despite the increased LNG um, imports, um, there's still much more work to do. Um, and, and we shall see whether um, Europe, um, through the um, unified uh, political objectives that, um, that you claim they have, and I have no reason to disbelieve you, um, whether they will have the metal to um, extract the sacrifices from their societies they need uh, to meet what I think is going to be uh, a peak demand for natural gas that they will be unable to uh, fulfill. Okay, so I think that there's a couple of things that are going on over the last couple of weeks. First of all, nuclear power was offline, both for, um, you know, there wasn't enough water in the rivers, but they also shut them off, um, you know, as a mistake. Half of all nuclear power capability of France was basically offline, so they don't warm up the rivers too much, um, which is, yes, hilarious. Um, there's also um, definitely rationing that will come into, into uh, place over the, last, over the next six months. So my point is not that the market is necessarily irrational. It's just that it has over, it's, it's basically overpriced itself. And you can see that in the futures. TTF, December 2022, is, is falling. Um, 
And, uh, and I think that's important. The other issue is in terms of the political willingness here, as I said, I mean, it's not one or zero. So there is a point where the European median voter is going to basically rebel. Um, and that point is coming close because the war in Ukraine is no longer war over Ukrainian sovereignty. You know, it's now about Ukrainian territorial control over all of its territory. And that's not something that the median Europeans are going to care about. Um, and so I think the European policymakers are going to have to, like, modify their maximalist goals toward sanctions with Russia. And so sending aircraft parts to Russia, as an example, is not going to be something that six months from now, especially if things get pretty hairy in the winter, it's not something that they're going to, like, refuse to do. There will be modification to their very, very maximalist goals towards Moscow that are going to have to be, like, dissipated. However, that said, there are a couple of things that can happen over the next six months to definitely ease the cost of the next six months, because it is a six-month problem, um, such as subsidies. So they're already talking about subsidizing um, you know, the cost to households. Um, and as I said before, I mean, bailing out peripheral member states costs half a trillion dollars. Many people bet at the time during the Euro-area crisis between 2010 and 2012, that these costs would be too great for Europe to bear. And that was, that was not really a national security issue at the time. That was more like, hey, the euro is a project worthwhile defending, so let's defend it with half a trillion euros. This is a national security issue. It's actual arm-to-arm -arm combat with the Russians. So I have no doubt that subsidies will be implemented and that they will cost a lot of money and that the Europeans will just spend that money on those subsidies. The second issue is that the way that the electricity markets work in Europe right now is that they are already manipulated massively, and they are manipulated to allow natural gas to set the price of electricity for two reasons. One, they wanted to encourage a shift from coal to natural gas. And second, they wanted lower-cost producers, including alternative energy, which tend to be like cheaper, to basically get a fatter profit margin. So the current electricity design is intended to manipulate the market to give alternative energy suppliers such as uh, solar and wind, which are subsidized anyways, to give them a fatter profit margin. So there's a lot that they can do over the next six months to unbundle that as well, to allow electricity to be unbundled from natural gas prices. Now, I think that would be a, probably a mistake, hasty electricity grid reform. Um, when you have a gun barrel to your head, seems like a really bad idea. But the point is that there aren't, it's not like they don't have the alternatives um, to what they can or cannot do. Oh, and by the way, just to be clear, one last point I want to say, Grant, before you jump in. So sure. what's my point here? What's my point? My point is that, you know, I'm, I'm not out there sitting and trading TTF. Like, I'm not really interested in that. I'm a macro investor, although I do want to short the crap out of it. And then it went from 200 to 350. <laughs> so, you know, if I had a risk manager, that person would have doused themselves in gasoline and set them to sell fire. But it's coming back down. So, hey, I'm still holding out hope that I'll eventually be right. But hold, well, yeah, yeah. My, yeah, this price, not yet. Not yet, not yet, but directionally it's moving in the right direction. Look, my point is more, um, there is a bigger narrative here about Europe. Let's, let's stop talking about specifics of the, the, the next six months. Six months, six months. You know, who cares? Let's talk about the next five years because the euro has come to parity. And when you talk to institutional investors and hedge fund managers, what they will, they, they're not going to sit here and debate with Doomberg about like storage. They're going to say the current 
crisis is reflective of a long-term problem for Europe, where these guys are going to have to pay high electricity prices forever. And my point to that is like, one, that is overstating the risks. Because one, the euro never even hit parity during the euro area crisis. Let's leave that aside. The second is that that is actually not true. Because there are alternatives that are emerging, and because eventually I think Russia will have to cry uncle. So that's why that like 12 to 24, 48 month time horizon is relevant. And and by the way, the other issue there that a lot of people are ignoring is that Europeans have been paying about two to three times higher electricity prices for industrial use for the past 20 years. And over the course of those 20 years, and certainly over the last 10 years during the U.S. shale boom, I've been told by every single person that I visited in the U.S. on the road in the financial community, like, hey, this is unsustainable. Eventually, Europe will lose market share. They haven't actually, if you look at global exports and you look at Europe's share of those global exports, they in the U.S. have maintained the same pace over the last decade. And just think about what that means. That means with two to three times higher electricity prices, for for some reason, Europe has maintained its market share in terms of global exports. Um, And I think that that's an important point for why I want to belong to the euro as a play on this particular crisis, because there's a lot of basically, you know, like doom and gloom about Europe on the longer term trajectory that I just don't think is empirical. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to come back to to that a little later. I want to bring Luke in here. Um, Luke, you know, Marcus talked about this being a war. uh, And, you know, I think I think that's a that's a pretty sensible way to view it. But you've been talking and writing about energy's place as a strategic asset for quite some time now, and you, you know, you've you've been you've been very vocal about um, the, the 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 triumvirate between the dollar, oil, and gold. And I think this is this would be a really great opportunity to to let people understand that theory of energy's place um, in the monetary system, because if if we are at war, and I, and I think Marco's right about that. There are there are multiple facets to that war. It's not simply trying to get leverage to get a concession in Ukraine. There's a much bigger picture uh, being painted here, and in my mind, no one's done a better job of sketching that out um, ahead of time than you. So, so perhaps you could talk on that for a second. Yeah, I th- thanks. I, I I think Marcus said something really interesting there a second ago. And he said it's not a one or a zero in terms of where we are in a political continuum, and I would agree with him on that. Where it is a one or a zero is when you look, and I think this did factor into Putin's calculus. Uh, Obviously, I haven't asked him about it, uh, but just reading between the lines of his various speeches most recently and over the last several years, um, I, I I think it has been a balance sheet contest on his part, which is to say, will the flows get, will they get the flows? Will they not get the flows? Um, I don't know. Um, these two gentlemen have done far more working at than I have. For me, the more, I guess, the more salient point to this one or zero conversation is at what price will those flows take place and what cuts will be needed to balance supply and demand, what price will be needed. And given how levered the EU is, in part because they have bailed out stuff before, as Marco noted, can can they afford it, right? So when you see a microcosm, we're seeing it this week, right? Is hey, 
pub gets, you know, electricity bill from 13,000 euro to 58,000 euro closes down the next day. That's one to zero, just like that, because that's what leverage does. And so when you have this nature's discount rate of energy, um, it's going to take a lot of productive businesses and take them from one to zero on to off. Um, and so that to me, and, and then once you start turning productive businesses off, then you get into tax receipt issues, you get into the need for the central bank to, uh, you know, the 500 billion turns into a trillion, turns into two trillion, whatever the number is. Now you need to bail out the banks because there's credit issues. To me, this, the, the energy issue, I think, is in, massively interesting in and of itself. But I think the energy issue, and I think this is what Putin did, was effectively tossing uh, a, a lighter into a nitroglycerin plant, which was the EU's balance sheet and Western sovereign balance sheets more broadly. Um, in terms of what we were talking about, uh, it, where I think there is a bigger play here, um, I go back to 2008 when Putin started buying physical gold in reserves. And then in 2013, they started selling and ended up selling all of their treasury bonds and kept buying gold. And at the time, people said, well, they're selling treasuries because there's a dollar shortage. And well, they're selling oil, so they're getting dollars and they're still buying gold. So if they're short and, and, and critically, this was very, very different than what Russia had done every other crisis. You go back to every other Russian crisis, every other collapse in the price of oil. What the Russians did is they kept the treasuries and they sold the gold. And they did the exact opposite beginning in 2014. And I think ultimately what Russia recognized, and you could hear this when Putin said this in his speech uh, in June of this year, he, I think, understands peak cheap energy very well, which is to say we're not running out of oil, but we're out of cheap oil. And so if you want to increase the supplies of oil and gas, which you need to do or else the record levels of sovereign and corporate debt will go boom then you are going to have to have the price of oil and gas grow 8 10% per annum on average for some time to come. And in that world, you cannot store, if you are Russia, you cannot store the surpluses you earn from selling oil and gas to the West in sovereign debt of the West that uh, is, is uh, you know, yielding you zero, one, two, when the price of oil, what you're selling them is growing eight, nine, ten. What's going to end up happening is Russia will end up running out of oil and gas at some point in the distant future. They will have a pile of Western IOUs and the price of oil and gas that they need uh, to buy back in to support their populace will have risen multiple fold relative to the value of the pile of those IOUs. And so for Russia, they're just better off leaving it in the ground far better off leaving it in the ground than trading it for negative real rate paper IOUs. And I think this is ultimately the goal of what they have been doing with oil. I mean, would Russia rather trade those surpluses for for Google and for Lockheed Martin and for uh, shares in, in, in you know, critical U.S. infrastructure? Yeah. I don't think the DOD is going to let that happen. Uh, and so... They can't really do what the Swiss National Bank has done or the Norwegians have done, uh, which is, is some of those types of, of you know, U.S. sales of industry uh, to settle deficits for consumables. So I think there is this, if you take a step back to look at the meta reasons for this, I think are very much around the 
currency system as it is been structured post 71, which is to say it is absolutely a matter of Russian national security to gain the ability to sell its oil and gas in local currencies and settle that in uh, settle that in gold uh, rather than in sovereign debt. And that it's also in certain interests in the United States uh, view of national security. And I, I don't know that that's true, but it was long true. And so it's a very dogmatic view in certain, amongst certain parties in Washington. Uh, but it's a matter of national security for the U.S. to not let Russia do that. And I think that is a key driver to this uh, this disagreement, effectively, that uh, the Russians want to do this and the U.S. doesn't want them to do this. And I think it's really interesting because when you look at potential solutions for the EU, uh, where right now the EU is looking at an energy shortfall and a weakening currency, and they are into what looks like in the classic emerging market um, hyperinflationary scenario where they print money to paper over an energy shortage, which weakens our currency further, which means they have to print more money to buy more energy, wash rents, repeat until you know, the currency collapses, the economy collapses or falls. There is a way the Europeans can cut the Gordian knot, which is to basically separate the dollar and, and, and energy prisis. They go to Russia, they reach they taunt with Russia, per Marco's point, and they say, look, turn Nord Stream 2 back on, we'll buy it all in euros, uh, we'll pay you in euros, you can take the euros and you can buy European equipment. Any net deficits that we run against you, Russia, we will settle in gold at a floating price in euros and in rubles, uh, which is akin to John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Bancor uh, from 44 or 46. And you know, incredibly, if you go back to the, um, if you go back to declassified U.S. State Department documents from 1973, 74, there's uh, a guy named Volker and Kissinger uh, in a room talking about how the European community at that point uh, led by the Dutch, the French, and to a lesser extent, the Germans were attempting to set up a system that would settle European energy deficits with the Arab Gulf community in physical gold at a floating above market price. And so they, the, the way, and that is a way, it is something they have been trying to do for 50 years. Um, you go back to 99, uh, you launch the Euro, you have this curious gold backing mark to market quarterly. Um, and and if, if the Europeans love the dollar so much, I don't know why they would have put 15% of Eurozone reserves into gold mark-to-market quarterly, but they did. Two years later, not even, uh, Saddam Hussein starts selling oil in euros. The Americans quashed that pretty quick, too, a couple years later. So my point is that the Europeans cannot be truly sovereign from an economic standpoint unless they are energy sovereign. And they cannot be energy sovereign unless they are buying energy in their own currency, a currency they can print. And they don't want to run the deficits and settle it all in debt like the Americans did because it would require the Germans to get rid of all those nice factories and they don't want to do that. So I think this has been just the latest installment of a 50-year story. Uh, and there's a way the Europeans can cut the Gordian knot on this. I just don't know if they're going to do it in time before, uh, before they collapse this winter. Not so much whether the, it flows or not, but what price it flows at and what the implication for all that debt, all that credit is if it flows at too high a price or in not enough volume. So I talked a lot. I'm going to pause there and, and open it back up. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of stuff to get into. I, I know that somewhere out there, Brent Johnson's dog is getting pet particularly hard right now. And in a normally functioning world, I'd probably bring him up to talk, but then we'd end up going down that that uh, that 
endlessly giving cul-de-sac. But, but Michael, I want to, before I go to Doomberg, I want to just bring you in on, on what Luke said there. A lot of those, um, you know, big picture ideas um, are enormously geopolitical in nature and potentially have dramatic consequences in reshaping, um, you know, the, the global chessboard. So some, some thoughts from you on, on uh, Luke's theory there. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, look, if the Europeans were serious about the energy embargo against Russia, we would have had secondary sanctions against Russia the way we do against Iran. So I want to like kind of pump the brakes a little bit on everyone's like, you know, freaking out about the war between Russia and Europe. U.S. and Russia really, really are at each other's like throat. But the Europeans were very adamant that they didn't want the secondary sanctions because they want the Indians and the Chinese to buy those oil barrels. You know, the whole energy embargo is a PR effort to allow Emmanuel Macron or Schultz to say in January of 2023, like, hey, we're no longer buying oil barrels from Russia, which is literally meaningless because those same oil barrels are going somewhere else. Right. And one of the and that's one of the reasons why I've been short oil when it hit 120, because it was like, wait a minute, the geopolitical risk premium is overstating the impact on Russian oil exports, you know, because like the West doesn't actually want those oil barrels to stop leaving Russia. There is a mechanism by which we could have stopped it, could have taken Indian companies buying Russian oil to court. We elected not to use that. And there's a reason for that, because it's kind of a farce. The second thing I would say is that I think it's also important. <clears throat> I think I agree 100% with Luke. I mean, like there's a lot here that has to do with European sovereignty, you know, and European like integration. And what I would caution everyone who's like looking at this as kind of the beginning of the unraveling of Europe, I would caution you to kind of look at previous crises that Europe emerged out of. The sovereign debt crisis started with half measures. Remember EFSF? It's basically set up in Luxembourg as an off-balance sheet vehicle to basically skirt European constitution. That's what EFSF was about. Then the ESM was retroactively basically added to the treaties. And now we have a slew of other measures, uh, whether it's the European Central Bank or Commission issuing debt. So what started with a half measure in a sovereign debt market has now become fully legalized integration of fiscal and monetary policy in Europe. Migration crisis. Again, another reason for people to be super, super bearish about Europe. Oh, they'll never figure it out. Now you've got Italian Navy basically patrolling Libyan waters. You've got Frontex, which was 120, you know, sleepy bureaucrats in Brussels making 150,000 euros a year and eating fine food in the commission cafeteria. They got weapons now. <clears throat> they have a wall, by the way, between Bulgaria and Turkey, you know, ironically and somewhat hypocritically, given the criticism of Donald Trump. So each crisis that Europe had to deal with ended up in not less integration, but more. And what Luke is pointing out is that they're going to have to have a common energy policy and probably a common currency policy as well to disentangle the sort of the dollar's role as a mediator in buying their energy for them. And my point is that's going to happen. That's going to come out of this because the median European does not want to unravel integration. And I can tell you that because you look at the polling and the polling is clear. The support for euro area is the highest it's ever been. Every anti-establishment politician in Europe, every party has basically abandoned their euroscepticism, not because they think it's, the euro is good, but because they just cater to what the voters want. And that brings me to a kind of a meta point here, 
Why is Europe integrating? What are the sinews that bind Europe together? And I think a lot of people who look at this from you know, different parts of the world, they think it's out of arrogance, ideology, some sort of like Trump used to say he doesn't like Europe because it's too multilateral, whatever the hell that means. And the truth is it's not. Europe is integrating out of weakness. It's integrating because these states on their own are effectively Lilliputian. Like maybe Germany is the equivalent of South Korea, maybe, okay, over the next hundred years. So the integration force is not one of arrogance or misplaced ideology. It's weakness and fear. And I can tell you that weakness and fear are great motivators uh, that really succumb all sorts of barriers. And I mean, you could argue that 13 colonies of the United States of America, if given a choice at the time, would not have created a more perfect union. Their initial, initial effort was a confederation, were weak linkages. But the threat of another invasion by the global hegemon, i.e. the United Kingdom, outside and, and other issues too, domestic unrest and so on. But the point is those threats forced them to rethink the original light integration and then sign the constitution and integrate further into the United States of America. Similarly, a place like Switzerland, where each canton celebrates some random year where they walked over to the other canton, and I literally mean walked over, and burned the neighborhood village. You know, these things are memorialized <laughs> in like statues and so on. Switzerland similarly integrated out of weakness as well. And I think that that's where a lot of folks looking at the situation now, looking at the TTF, electricity prices, if you extrapolate that linearly into the future, what you're doing is you're betting against that integration as impulse. And um, over the past 10 years, that's been a sure way to lose money. Yeah, that, 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 that's true. And as, as we get on to the broader issue of Europe beyond the energy crisis and, and a lot of what you said there, um, I think Sir Stephen Wilkinson's listening. And if, and if I can persuade him to come and join us up here um, uh, as a speaker, there's some really interesting parts of uh, the conversation I had with him recently that I'd, that I'd love to get uh, the audience to hear and also you guys to, to share um, your thoughts on. But Dumi, I want to come back to you. Um, there's a lot there, uh, both from Marco on the, on the, on the geopolitical side and Luke on uh, you know this this great game between um, Russia and the West. Um, you, your thoughts? Well, I, I hate asking yeah. people for their thoughts. So I'm I'm in flex camp that that's just such a general question. But there's so much for me to go over there. I'm going to leave it to you. I know you've been making notes furiously. Yeah, I think there's one really important thing that um, sort of a sleight of hand in the analysis here that is important to call out. Um, the the commentary around the price of electricity and and the broader sort of context of energy. Uh, it is true that the price of electricity in Europe has been twice what it was in the US for the past several years, um, better part of a decade. And that's because um, renewable uh, energy is actually not cheaper as um, was alluded to earlier, but in fact, uh, net net, when you integrate the full cost of the grid um, only exacerbates the price of electricity. Um, Europe was able to withstand an electricity crisis um, and still do pretty well. Um, Value-added economy and you know Germany exports and, and all the things um, that were mentioned earlier. Why is that? Uh, it, electricity is a minor component of a, a country, or in this case, a continent's primary energy consumption. Um, natural gas, um, while only 15% of Europe's electricity production, as Marco pointed out in his thread, is actually 25% of their total energy consumption which means 
X electricity. Natural gas is 28 or 29, perhaps 30% of the input to the entire continent's energy consumption. And what we're seeing now for the first time, which is why this is such a crisis, which is why we've been flagging this for as long as we have and for as loudly as we have, and why we think the recent um, pullback from $100 a million BTU to 60, which will undoubtedly skyrocket on Monday if the reports that Nordstrom won will be taken offline indefinitely are true. Um, this is the first time that the European Union will have to confront an energy crisis, which is different, a derivative of, related to, but not the same as an electricity crisis. This is where, at the peak of winter, um, you're not worried about turning on your television. You're worried about keeping your family warm. Um, and this is a big difference, one that shouldn't be minimized. And it is undoubtedly a short-term challenge. And again, I agree completely with, with Marco's analysis of the necessity of a stronger European Union built out of weakness um, where the collective is undoubtedly stronger, can defend itself, can project international power. But we have right in front of us today a significant, potentially as existential set of risks that I don't think it does anybody any good to minimize. Um, energy is different than electricity. Electricity is a minor component and natural gas is a significant component to Europe's energy problem. Of the things that I've heard in the past 15 minutes, this is the one major point that I would like to make and I make it uh, because I have a sincere and deep love for Europe. Um, I would like for uh, Europe to prevail. Uh, I, I have many friends in Europe, visited the continent dozens and dozens of times. Um, I would love nothing more than for natural gas to crash to $10 per million BTU, for electricity to go back to historical norms, and for the Europeans to triumph um, over Vladimir Putin, who I think we all agree is a, an, a, a dastardly person. Um, we, we highlight these things out of a sincere um, desire to see this uh, not, not transpire. So anyway, back to you, Grant. Oh, just to, just to interject here, I actually yeah, have no, no sincere desire to see Europe succeed. I just want that to be very clear to everyone. Like, I, I literally don't. And I, I say that, Doomberg, because you keep saying that as if my analysis is in some way, like, wishful thinking. I'm, I'm trying to forecast markets and make my clients money. That's my priority number one, priority number two, priority number three. Like, literally couldn't care less what happens to anyone else. And I say that because, like, when I say that Europe is going to integrate further and resolve this crisis, and if that means burning a pile of money, then burning the pile of money... It's not because I want that to happen, because, I mean, that's my forecast, right? Um, and the other issue I would also point out, like, look, if this is a six-month issue, that sucks for Europe. They're going to have to deal with it, like, too bad for them. But when you have 200 BCM of liquefaction capacity under, uh, under construction right now in the world, that will come online by 2024, we can, you know, debate what the numbers are. Maybe it's off by this or that, but, like... When you think about all the LNG coming down the line, there's an aspect here which is really important for our game theoretical analysis, which is how long can Russia, you know, like we, we seem to be assuming that Russia is like set. So I think Luke's analysis also makes that assumption, which is kind of like Russia is on this trajectory and it is what it is. And my point to you guys is the time is running out for Russia. And Doomberg, you make that point consistently, like, look, this is crisis right now. In the long term, the Russians have a problem. And why do they have a problem? Russians have a problem because 100, 150 BCM, depending how you calculate it, that comes down the pipelines to Europe from the Yamal Peninsula, comes down the pipelines to Europe from the Yamal Peninsula. 
period, end of sentence, end of story. And if Putin was such a genius, and by the way, this is to your point, Luke, about 2008 being an inflection point, fine, I hear you, gold, totally right, I get it. But if he was a genius, he would have built that pipeline to China. He didn't. Yamal Peninsula natural gas is stranded asset for him. And I don't think that it makes sense for Russia to have that asset stranded. So I think at some point, if there is all this LNG coming down the, the pipeline, or the opposite, coming down the ship, if you have a lot of export terminals that will come online over the next two to three years, and if Europeans weather the next six months because they're going to just burn a pile of money, you know, Russia and Putin, they have to ask themselves, this $50 billion we're keeping in Yamal and not shipping anywhere else, how long can we withstand that? Uh, and that's important for my analysis of where assets go, not who's winning or who's losing. I couldn't care less who's winning or who's losing. That's why when I see TTF at 350, I say, okay, a bunch of people are extrapolating current situation linearly, not taking into account what's happening in Donetsk and Luhansk, being willfully ignorant of what's happening in Moscow, what's happening with the energy sector of the Kremlin, who's probably not happy that Putin's keeping 50 billion euros off their table. You know, there's a lot of other things that are going to interact. And that's why I keep saying math is a wrong tool for this analysis. Just as it was during the euro area crisis, by the way. You know, if you were a bond investor in 2010, 2011, 2012, and you did the math, you did the GDP, debt to GDP of Italy, you did the growth, you did the term premium, you did all this stuff, you would have sold BTPs at what? 10% yield. And guess what? Draghi showed up and ate your lunch. And you're out of a job right now, shaking your little fist at how the markets are manipulated. Well, no, you're, you've just been overtaken by the paradigm shift where suddenly politics and geopolitics matters more than math. This, 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 is, a, this is a great point, and I, I want to talk more about this, this the, the importance of geopolitics suddenly, because it's something that you know, people in the, in the financial industry have kind of gritted their teeth and been forced to incorporate it into their frameworks in, in, a, in a bigger and bigger way in recent years. And I think the events of the last six months um, have have really kind of caught people off guard. But when you look at um, potential solutions for Europe to, let's talk about the energy crisis first. Uh, Dumi, you know, you've written a lot about about nuclear. You've written a lot about solar and wind. Um, are there any obvious alternatives to natural gas in the short term? It's a challenge. Um, so at a minimum, I think Germany should be um, – announcing loudly that it will be postponing the closure of the three nuclear power plants that it has, and it should be working diligently to reopen the three that it just closed. And on top of that, it should be investigating whether um, the dozen or so other reactors they have closed recently um, might be uh, reopened. You know, we put out a kind of a cheeky piece um, uh, on, on Europe and, and our belief that the leaders have shown a very poor judgment um, since this crisis unfolded and that we've just decided that we're going to predict they're going to show um, similar um, poor judgment uh, as we we hurtle towards this crisis of the winter. And um, and to be fully transparent, um, we we don't advise clients on investments. We write um, you know on policy and 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 um, to inform and entertain. And and we do care about the people of Europe, and we would like them to 
to get through this winter so that we can then um, regroup and um, and ultimately, you know, win the geopolitical battles uh, against our foes um, that we would that we would like to achieve. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we believe that um, the options uh, that are before us uh, are unlikely to be followed. So uh, what have we seen just today? Uh, we've seen um, this nonsensical G7 effort to, quote, put a cap um, on on, on Putin's energy, as though we could dictate to the three to half to four billion people who are transacting um, outside of the sanctions regime how much they should pay for somebody else's property. Uh, it's it's obscene. Uh, it's just not going to work. Um, and so this is sort of the part of the equation that I think is being underestimated. You know, when you do back the envelope calculations of uh, the amount of money that that Europe will have to print, quote unquote, um, per Luke's point. Um, that's, I think, neglecting a very substantial um, price elasticity of demand where those prices uh, could ultimately go. Uh, once it becomes clear um, that we're in fact heading into this winter with not enough jewels. And, and we predicted in the piece we just wrote and published yesterday um, that we will see um, price caps, bailouts, um, um, stimulus checks, um, all of the things that Luke is talking about, which is sort of the, uh, the, the Weimar Republic playbook. Um, and, and on top of that, I, I actually think we're going to see, at least at the periphery, um, some protectionism uh, begin to evolve as people uh, are staring down the barrel of um, heating their homes uh, and by extension feeding their families um, or um, joining arms in solidarity for a political project of the elite. Um, it's just undeniable um, that um, we're nine meals to crazy. And if we run out of energy in Europe, which would be a catastrophe for, for both Europe and for the U.S., and for the global financial system, um, it's going to be a significant, significant event. And I, and again, I, I go back to the downplaying of um, energy versus electricity. Um, it, it, it's hey, look, nobody hopes um, more than than we do that we're wrong. Um, uh, but you know, the, there's only a certain amount of molecules, and um, we don't yet have enough. And and it's going to be a, a real issue. Um, but again, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, three years from now, what the world will look like. Um, it's, it's the path function and the risk. You know, the old jokes uh, in back in my uh, sort of um, graduate school days uh, in the lab, um, it only takes one zero in a geometric mean to know what the answer is. Um, we, we are hurtling towards a significant crisis. And um, it, 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 we've not yet seen evidence uh, from the political establishment in Europe that they're serious enough to lead us through this challenge. And you know, we had Boris Johnson talking about um, getting a new kettle yesterday. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And this price cap that we are proposing <laughs> to, to impose uh, upon uh, three and a half to four billion people transacting outside of our domain, um, it, it's, you can't, I, it's baffling. Um, so, you know, I'll stop there. I've probably got on too far. There's, a, there's, a, there's an awful lot about this that's baffling. And uh, Boris, Jen, Boris Johnson's uh, <laughs> tirade about the kettle is just one of them. Luke, um, let me bring you back in. Um, one one uh, place that's been notably absent from this conversation, and in fact from uh, the headlines in, in many ways, is China. Uh, where does China sit in this? Uh, what are they thinking as they kind of survey all the various uh, frictions going on around them right now? <laughs> that's where I think, you know, the whole three to four year breakdown or, or, or sort of outlook, okay, Europe will, be, Europe will be okay, starts to break down a little, which is what I think China's thinking is like, oh my God, I can't believe they're committing economic suicide for us. We don't even have to compete. They're, they're, they're literally 
like putting a gun in their mouth and pulling a trigger. That's what I think the Chinese are thinking, which is, yes, there are absolutely the major logistical issues in the short run on the gas. Uh, with that said, we all know how many Chinese engineers graduate every year. We all know how fast they build infrastructure. Yes, you know, fill in joke about buildings falling over here. Uh, they've got whatever, 30,000 or 60,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, and we got like none. So my point is, is that, yes, it's an issue for the next two to three years, but I think it's really important to go back in time and remember how Putin sat down with Xi, uh, I think it was two weeks or so before the actual invasion. And and they did, they, they I forget their phrase, it's basically like a rock-solid relationship, a rock-solid alliance, whatever. I don't believe either one of them. What I do believe are the U.S. State Department people who started immediately panicking based on what they had heard. And they, they about, they haven't heard language like this since, you know, the 40s. And Point being is, I, I think it's highly likely that Putin got an agreement with Xi to say, listen, you know, how much can you take? How fast can you build the pipelines? Uh, you know, here's what we're going to do. And they're going to cut us off and the Americans are going to weaponize the dollar and they're going to do the same stupid sanctions they've been doing for 10 years and bragging about in books. And, you know, in the meantime, the price of oil is going to go up. We'll cut you a deal and we'll basically promise to give you cheap energy. Uh, the Europeans will two, three years from now cut us off. They will take very expensive American LNG and maybe turn their nukes back on. And you'll get all this cheap gas and you will have a, a, a priority, low cost position relative to European industry going forward, starting circa 2025, 2026, which, oh, by the way, coincides with, you know, the China 2025 program. So for me, like the demand side, I mean, I, I've said this before in interviews, if I could take a helicopter everywhere I went, and if I could fly a G5 everywhere on vacation, I would. So would every human, so would every person on this call. It's wonderful. But but we can't afford it. And so my point is, is if it, I think it's important context within this discussion, uh, within the context, of course, of the logistics on the gas side in particular, which I think are absolutely uh, critical to understand. Uh, look at the per capita consumption of oil and gas in India and China relative to Europe, relative to the U.S. Uh, and and you realize that it's a, just a logistical issue with, you know, a country that built up infrastructure from nothing over 10 or 15 years. So I think that having China being there to be the demand recipient, I think China's tickled by this. They, the Europeans are going to impair themselves competitively. And oh, by the way, signing out with the Americans for the LNG you know, you, we're, you know, we're going to squeeze them just like the Russians did. We're just going to maybe do it a little nicer, sort of, um, to be clear. So it's not like it's, oh, you know, we did, I mean, call up the blessing letter, right? The Carl blessing letter where the Americans sat down with the Germans in 67 or 68 and said, don't you dare change, uh, exchange those dollars for gold. We'll pull the military out. So, you know, it's the same game. It's a little nicer. You know, the Americans, you know, they'll cancel you, but they won't throw you out of a hotel. So, you know, that that's that's better. Sure. Uh, but it's but it's the same game. And it still ends with Europe not being energy sovereign, beholden to the Americans. And number two, not as competitive against the Chinese. Uh, Marco, the um, when you look at China, uh, again, through this um, through this lens of constraint. 
How do you see both sides of that equation changing potentially for China over the last six months? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, endless friendship apparently doesn't include sending drones to your endless friend. You know, I'll just say that. Uh, so I think China is is not happy about what's going on. And I think that there's a lot of Western bias when we analyze China. We've all decided over the last five years that China's evil. Five years ago, everybody was happy. So now, you know, China's seen as kind of the root of all problems. But like, look, the truth is Chinese corporates have frozen investment in Russia. They've banned export of military technology, including drones, which is why Putin had to go in person, hat in hand to Iran, to buy those really, really sophisticated, high-quality Iranian drones. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Um, you know, I think that this endless friendship is actually built on nothing but rhetoric, ideological hatred of the West, which, hey, you know, is sometimes enough. But there's just isn't enough infrastructure between China and Russia to actually make it work. You know, like Russia, in terms of total trade with China, is about as relevant as Netherlands or Brazil or Vietnam. Vietnam is actually more relevant to China. So when you look at those figures, you start realizing that China, as an importer of energy, is not happy, especially if LNG costs go up. It's built a lot of, it's put a lot of money into import terminals, not pipelines to Russia. Um, it has some Eastern Siberian uh, oil and natural gas fields. So that's Power Russia Pipeline 1, which came online. But that's not, but that's like 5% of Russian exports. And so the Chinese have tried to, they've tried to, they've really sat back in terms of supporting Russia uh, in, in concrete terms. And I think that reveals their actual true preference. When you, when you get away from the ideological rhetoric, like, hey, NATO did this, uh, you know, U.S. and the West is really to blame for this as much as anyone else. When you get away from that and you actually look at their actions, they've been pretty, pretty paltry in terms of supporting their supposed ally Russia. And I think that's because they're trying to signal to Europe, specifically to Europe, not so much the U.S., that they are neutral. And the reason they're doing that is because fundamental problem for China over the next 10 years is their private sector is massively leveraged. They cannot get away from that. Their policymakers are pushing on a string. They're in a balance sheet recession. The private sector demand is not going to recover anytime soon. They're going to continue to be addicted to export-like growth, as well as investment domestically. Um, and for that, they're going to need those European markets in particular. Okay. Um, Dumi, uh, so just coming back to you um, from, from, from China's perspective to this, you know, when, you look at, when you look at China, when you look at uh, where they sit in both their struggle against the U.S., and also their their need to try to placate stakeholders back home. There's all kinds of stories of bank runs and defaults and all kinds of potential unrest in China. What do you see when you look at China right now in the context of this energy crisis and the domestic problems they seem to be having? I, I concur with, with much of what Marco just said as it pertains to um, China, although I think it's important to distinguish between sort of China and Xi. <laughs> Um, and um, we have a very important um, moment before us, which is, you know, Xi's gambit that he can basically anoint himself, um, you know, leader for life in China. Um, and and having traveled to China, you know, every quarter for the better part of a decade, um, it's one of those situations where you feel like you have um, 
more than enough knowledge to be dangerous. Um, I think China is is a fascinating place. Um, it has real challenges, and I think Xi um, and his leadership uh, imposed upon China um, is worth analysis, you know, analyzing um, sort of separately here. Um, and and I, I wonder um, whether some of the, the sort of the big challenges facing China today that are being papered over um, will only be allowed to manifest um, after October, um, when um, Xi has solidified his long-term um, grip on power. Um, but it, it is sort of in many ways, um, especially for those living in the West, and I'd be the first to admit it, a, a geopolitical black box um, to analyze because there's so much flow under the surface of what we're allowed to see um, that it becomes very difficult to model. Uh, I would say with respect to their um, orientation towards Putin, um, you know, I, I do think, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is, is your friend for, for what Marco just said, you know, um, unified hatred of the West might be enough for the, the period that's relevant uh, under discussion today, which is the next um, 18 to 24 months. Now, I would say um, in closing, uh, before turning back to you, that one of the things I hear consistently uh, in the Western media is this sort of... Um, this assumption of Western technological superiority as it, as it pertains to, um, you know, uh, oil and gas in particular and, and the development thereof. Um, whether or not China decides to share their technology with Russia or India, in this case, uh, more importantly, or Saudi Arabia, which is a really important geopolitical cog that we have not discussed yet. Um, I've given a lecture at Fudan University in Shanghai. I have delivered a presentation to the CEO of Saudi Aramco. Um, I understand deeply the technological capabilities of reliance industries uh, in India. And for us in the West to assume that China, India, and Saudi Arabia would not be capable of supporting Russia and, and supporting their sort of um, high-tech needs to keep the energy flowing, I think that is a very, very dangerous and naive assumption um, based on the capabilities. I can tell you that um, uh, IIT in India and the various campuses and, um, you know, the Fudans of the world uh, and, and Saudi Aramco have incredible technology. They have billions of dollars to invest. There's no shortage of international and domestic engineers being cranked out of these universities. And if anything, um, we in the West, through our sort of hatred of the fossil fuel industry, uh, are not producing enough petroleum engineers uh, to maintain the edge that we have. Uh, and so I, I think it is a dangerous assumption to assume that uh, we have some technical edge and that is a weapon that we could lord over Putin, assuming that Saudi Arabia, India, and, and China decide um, that Putin's energy is worth investing in. So I'll turn it back to you. I, I remember the quote from Samuel L. Jackson in um, uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight when he said, when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you an umption. And I think this is, uh, this is a, a great point you make. But listen, I, I, I want to pivot and talk about Europe. When we talk about what's next, I want to talk about the potential strains that this energy crisis might put on. Marco touched on that earlier, and I want to explore that a bit deeper. But I think before we do that, Dumi, I want to, should we see if we can just take a couple of questions from people? There's so many people listening. I want to give at least a, a couple of people a chance to ask a question about what we've heard so far before we pivot to talk about Europe as yeah. an entity. So I think that we can try. The only challenge is there's 4,200 people right now on the space and selecting. Um, well, let's, hmm. we could we could go uh, old school and just go first come first serve. What do you reckon? Yeah, if people have a question for the panel, please raise your hand, and we'll see if between Grant and I, we have enough neurons to um, operate the technology. <laughs> it's unlikely. It's <laughs> unlikely, but we'll do our best. 
Yeah. Uh, and by the way, just as we're waiting, it's been totally fantastic and um, really appreciate the opportunity. And it's been a lot of fun. So, um, but more of this is, is better than less for sure. And I think um, the fact that we have so many people that have uh, currently listening or have dialed in for part of it is testimony to the fact that um, these Twitter spaces are great and um, lots of people are, are keenly interested to hear. Um, yeah, agreed. We've got 27 agreed. requests to speak, but I can't see any of them for some reason. Okay, hold on. I've got, I only see four. You're right, right. it's going to be clunky. So, you know what? My four is going to be easier to sift through than your um, than your uh, 27. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and and bring somebody up? Pick a random winner. I'm going to pick a random winner. Here we go. Uh, We've got Consultanen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Let's see if he can hear us and if he can ask his question. Hold on. I'm connecting here. Yeah, unmute yourself, um, sir, I assume, based on your icon. there you go. There I'm a right. huge fan of all you guys. That's all I'm going to say. Besides, I just have a question about what happens to inflation and the dollar when we're paying or Europe is paying for everyone's energy over the course of the winter time and for an extended duration. Uh, Luke, I'm going to give that one to you, I think, if you wouldn't mind taking first crack at that. And then if anyone else wants to uh, voice their thoughts afterwards, um, feel free. That's what I really think is is the really underappreciated second derivative in this that, you know, because it is so important to understand where the flows are coming and going, because that's 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 the first derivative. But I think almost equally important uh, and, and probably something we'll see more of is if the Europeans are out bidding on global LNG markets, everybody else in the world is going to pay more. Everyone in the U.S. is going to pay more. Um, um, all else equal. And if the Europeans have to ration either via price, which leads to economic decline, or via what we saw this week with uh, Habeck in Germany saying we're seeing industries shut down. We've seen a couple different smelting plants shut down already. We're not even really into the winter yet. We all got to see last year how sensitive global supply chains are. You don't have to shut down a whole lot before they just start shutting down. And the Europeans, by virtue of being as big as they are, uh, obviously very tied into global supply chains. And so for me, this is the great underappreciated second derivative is between bidding up LNG energy markets and then I think to this disruption to global supply chains – you're looking quite possibly, um, if not likely, at a reacceleration of global CPI um, as a result of supply chain disruptions, money printing, energy inflation, uh, as you as everyone competes for these molecules, at a time where, look, the U.S. is already heading toward a recession. I know Europe has got to already be in a recession, global slowdown, et cetera. Um, and yet we have the bond market in this position, you know, it, it, can the Fed keep raising rates into a slowdown? Um, and that, that to me is, I, I think you'll see, you know, to answer directly, I think you'll see CPI up. I think you'll see supply chain disruptions. I think you'll see energy up. And I think that puts the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of Japan uh, under even greater pressure of the sort that they've seen over the last three months. And that's where I think ultimately, um, I think this is part of what Putin's strategy was, is I want to force the Americans, I want to force the Europeans to run the Argentine monetary policy playbook. I want them printing money to make sure their sovereign debt market still works, is still functioning, is at appropriate rates. 
with CPI at five, with CPI at six. And I think ultimately, I, I think we end up with U.S. CPI uh, at this time next year in the double digit range as a result. Mark, I'm going to let you uh, take a stab at anything you want to add to that before we ask one more question. And then I want to pivot if we can. A lot of that, you know, I mean, I don't know. If we just extrapolate where we are right now, and if Luke is right, there's a recession coming in the U.S. next year, I just think it's going to be very difficult to see CPI go up. I mean, that's, that's basically kind of the simple way I look at it. I think CPI has peaked. I think we're coming down for a number of different reasons. The only thing that can keep it up is some exogenous geopolitical risk. Um, but I think one thing to watch very carefully for the demand uh, for LNG and also for oil is what what uh, happens after Congress in China. And so one way in which Luke could be correct and where we could have a really interesting dynamic from a macro perspective is one where Chinese policymakers finally panic and respond to the kind of the French Revolution risk next year with significant uh, investment-like growth domestically as the U.S. is headed into a slowdown which could pull energy prices significantly higher into a slowdown in Europe and the U.S. And that will be a very big problem for central banks in both. I've actually got a question here via DM, which I'm actually going to throw into the mix because it's something that I wanted to ask myself, so I'm going to be a bit selfish here. Apologies for that. Um, uh, Marco, I'm actually going to give this one to you as well to start with. Uh, The question is, is there a price to the European economy in terms of costs and damage to business and possibly political upheaval where the EU throws Ukraine under the bus. Um, do you think that's a possibility? And if so, what would it take? I mean, I think we're there. This is my whole entire point, that using math to extrapolate current events and then predict where we are is folly. Because we're already there. And it's a function not just of the costs to European policymakers, it's also the function of what's happening in Ukraine. So if there were Russian tanks in Kiev... I would have a different view. But because Russians are not competent enough to get to Kiev, and because all they're doing is fighting in part of Ukraine that there's been fighting since 2014 and that nobody in Europe really cares about, because of that fact, European political costs are actually kind of higher. Supporting Ukraine is easy for politicians in Europe when there is like a risk to complete collapse of society in Ukraine. You know, when Russians are basically trying to conquer half of or all of Ukraine. But when they're simply dabbling in conquest, the regions of Ukraine, they attempted to conquer in 2014 and 15, and quite frankly, kind of failing at it, then it's much more difficult to sustain these electricity and energy prices because the media European is going to say, well, hang on a minute. We did help Ukraine retain its independence and sovereignty. Kiev is, is not at risk of an invasion by Russians. We have given them uh, weapons, and we've even given them EU candidacy status. So I don't know. I feel like that's enough for me, you know, says the proverbial median European voter. And then politicians are going to have to respond to that. And that's why that's why I keep saying extrapolating the current Russian behavior into the future is where I disagree probably the most with Dunberg and Luke. I just I think that Russian regime is far less geopolitical and strategic than people think. I think they make stuff up as they go. I mean, if if Putin was a genius, let me just throw this out there. If he was a genius, he would have just built those pipelines to China in 2008. Instead, he sunk it into Sochi Olympics, which was idiotic, like $100 billion worth of winter Olympic stadiums. If Russia was so smart, they would have built an alternative delivery mechanism for their Yamal Peninsula gas. They didn't, which 
tells me that they're kind of just making stuff up as they go along. And I think at some point they decided $50 billion a year is, is too much to lose for unidentified gains. Uh, Dumi, I'm going I'm to pivot in a second, but I just want to get your thoughts on that, on that question about throwing Zelensky under the bus for Europe. Well, I, I, I just I have heard this $50 billion number. Um, in the second quarter, Russia made more money from energy than it's ever made. Um, I don't think anybody in Russia is wondering about um, the fallacy of the current um, um, regime stance uh, because they're somehow um, uh, not gaining from their, their energy leverage. Um, but they were so actually gas. But they were still exporting gas down pipelines. So we'll see. But remember, there's a $30 discount between Urals and, and, and Brent. And they only started shutting off that, uh, Nord Stream in earnest, really, at the beginning of the third quarter. Yeah, but, but you're not seriously arguing that the, the, the spike in energy um, that happened before and as a consequence of the, of the war in Ukraine is somehow hurting the today um, you know, um, um, value that um, Russia is extracting. I mean, it's literally the way in which they're funding the war, which is why we have been arguing um, for many months that you cannot um, sanction Russia's energy and expect to hurt Putin because he'll just make it up um, in price. Um, and and there, I mean, the sanctions have failed. I mean, I think we could all agree. I hope we could all agree that uh, the original intent of the sanctions, which was to destroy the ruble and cause hyperinflation in in Russia, um, have failed. Um, they have failed because of um, the um, relative incompetence of the politicians who imposed them uh, and their lack of understanding of the price elasticity of demand. Look, if we if we were able to um, blockade Russia and cut 50% of their oil exports, um, the price of oil would, would weigh more than double, and he would just make it up uh, on price. Um, this is the part, this is the, the fallacy, I think, of many um, observers who, who don't have significant experience, direct experience in the commodity sector. Um, Putin is printing cash today um, for Putin. Um, um, the sanctions are hurting Europe uh, more than the sanctions have hurt Russia. Um, we, this is an uncomfortable thing to say. It runs against the um, epic uh, and, and unrelenting propaganda that we're fed in the Western media. But um, relatively speaking, in the short term, um, Russia is uh, benefiting from uh, the sanctions regime and we are paying the price. And Europe in particular is the tip of the spear. And why Europeans are putting up with it, um, it, it shocks me. Um, but um, we, we shall see. I mean, I just think um, like... Putin is that that energy is finding its way to the market um, big time and at much higher prices. And so the integral under that curve for him, um, as you say, this is short term and he needs to um, you know, strike while the iron is hot. Um, and I do believe, as I said in my very opening comment, that in the sort of three to, three to 10 year time horizon, um, this will be in hindsight, perhaps a catastrophe. But in the short term, He's not losing this, quote, uh, $50 billion that you keep referencing. He is printing cash. Like, this is literally a cash machine. And we shall see uh, on Monday, um, because, by the way, when TTF goes to 100, uh, JKM goes to 75, and um, the rest of the contracts um, get elevated, too. Like, there's only so many molecules to go around, and, and you know, there's not enough. And and he, you could literally cut his volume by 50%, and his price would triple. And so he makes more money. You cannot win a commodity war by trying to keep somebody's volume off the market. The only way to win a commodity war is to produce, to flood the market, to crash the price. Oil traded for minus 37 famously post COVID. Um, this is what the drum we've been banging for a long time. Um, Western Europe 
and the United States and the uh, other um, producers of energy in the world um, should be producing as much as they can to flood the market, to crush price, to weaken Putin. We're doing the opposite. And he is. Yeah, well, one yeah. thing I would add, too, is just of in terms of his strategy, I think something that has surprised the Europeans and has surprised Putin over the last 20 years has been the willingness of the Americans to uh, basically throw a grenade into the middle of of the process, right? In terms of uh, Saddam gets uh, uh, moves his production to euros, the Europeans suddenly look at gaining energy sovereignty, and we know what happened there. I'm not saying that that, that was the sole reason we were involved, but at the very least, it was a very nice ancillary benefit in the interests of uh, in certain interests in Washington. Uh, I think similarly, uh, we had Nord Stream too. We haven't mentioned it yet, but. You know, yeah, he did one pipeline. He, then he did a second pipeline to sort of right into Germany, um, and they got it right up to being done. And uh, you know, you, you have Jean Claude Juncker saying it's it's preposterous or it's absurd was the word he used that we are we're paying you know ninety eight percent of our of our energy imports are in dollars. Um, so you can see this theme of we need energy sovereignty, and and, and I think Putin was attempting to be a good faith partner to provide energy sovereignty to the European Union through the Germans. And, and, and I think once again, uh, the, I think he was, Putin was naive, uh, actually to, uh, think that the Americans stand aside and not invite Ukraine into NATO, not put missiles on, on, on a border of Russia, uh, which was a red line. Uh, and, uh, so I, I, I think that there are things that, have surprised the Europeans and the Russians that we've been willing to do uh, to stop the Europeans from gaining energy sovereignty over the last 20 years. I would just say that there is no oil embargo against Russia. So like I will go even further. So Doomberg says it was stupid. I would say it's a PR exercise, as I said, kind of like 45 minutes ago. You know, like there's a six-month implementation. Why? Why? Specifically to allow Europeans to find other supply, but also to allow Russia to find other sources of demand. On top of that, what Doomberg said about uh, tech, right? A lot of oil bulls out there saying like, oh, wait a minute, there's going to be shut-ins, there's going to be that and this and that, as if Russians can't find enough engineers to keep their uh, production online. And so, um, and then finally, as I said, there was no secondary sanctions. Like if, you, if Indian company buys Iranian crude, the U.S. Justice Department goes after them with secondary sanctions. That doesn't, that's not in place with Russia. So in a way, I both agree and disagree because I think that like we're, we're basically talking about a price increase that has benefited Putin. But that price increase is based on a read of sanctions that's incorrect. And, you know, like in March, uh, Jeff Curry and the team at Goldman Sachs, great guys. I mean, they write great research, nothing against them. But they, they basically set the anchor for the market at a million and a half you know, barrels lost due to the sanctions. I just don't see that happening. Indians are gorging themselves. God bless them. You know, they, they get it. The Chinese are doing the same. Russians are finding alternative demand. And the sanctions are kind of toothless. They're a PR exercise to allow European policymakers to say that they do not import any Russian oil, but Russian oil is still flowing. And that goes back to my point. Like the reason the 50 billion matters, it may not matter this year, may not even matter next year, but you've got a stranded asset. You've got massive amount of infrastructure you've invested money into, pipelines, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, and you're just going to sit on that. I mean, there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of mouths to feed in a feudal enterprise like Russia. 
And at some point, that 50 clip a year is going to matter, especially because you do not want to invest 200, 300, 400 billion dollars that it would take to take Yamal Peninsula natural gas to China. I mean, that pipeline would be one of the greatest infrastructure projects we humans have ever done. You know, getting the pipelines from Yamal all the way to to uh, Chinese industrial users. And who's going to pay for that? If it's the Russians, then on top of my $50 billion a year, you have to add that price of that pipeline to China, which they haven't built yet. The Americans will pay for it. We'll, we'll, we run $300 <laughs> billion a year in surpluses with the Chinese. The Chinese will take the dollars and they'll turn around and they'll build the surplus but you know, the, look, you know, in our cheap plastic trinkets at Walmart. <laughs> but, you know, you and Doom mentioned another point here, which is important. I, I think it was either you or Doomberg. I forgot which one of you said. But, like, this is important. Like, LNG price is going up because Europeans are now, like, panicking and looking for every cargo in the cushions of the proverbial, like, LNG couch. That is also <laughs> what's going to lift prices domestically as well. And here's, here's what I think the Russians end up doing over the next three years. They build L- more LNG terminals in the Arctic to deal with those stranded assets, which is ironic because they might end up in Europe, by the way, totally st- crazy scenario. And then basically what happens is we get a global LNG market over the next five, 10 years, which lifts everyone's prices, including America's, which then begs the question of why in the long term do we expect Europe to suffer when all energy prices everywhere equalize. And then whichever whichever region figures out the obvious, which is that nuclear power is the way to go, is ultimately going to win. And maybe Japan has just figured it out, so we should all just go long JPY. So on this, we can, we can agree wholeheartedly. Sorry, finally, finally, sorry, we can all agree. <laughs> um, Agreed. I, I will say this. The equilibrium state of natural gas is that it shall trade globally within a band that roughly approximates the cost of shipping. We are nowhere near that today because we do not have the import and export LNG terminals to do so or enough carriers to have enough flex supply on the oceans to make that happen. But when we do... The United States of America will be paying a lot more for its natural gas. Uh, there's no question about it. And per Marco's last point on nuclear, China has 50 nuclear power plants under development and another uh, 100 in planning. Um, they might be convincing us to buy their solar panels and their um, you know, um, wind turbine blades. Um, but if you look at what their action is, they are hurriedly turning back on coal, buying every... Um, ton of coal that they can find and building out nuclear at a rapid pace. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's always the challenge. You, know, you don't want to say, oh, Putin is a genius or the Chinese are shrewd um, to overestimate um, you know, um, their intelligence just so we could denigrate our own leaders. But at the same time, we don't want to be underestimating uh, what's, what such leaders are doing. I think Putin has made many, many mistakes. The biggest mistake he made was rolling into Ukraine. Um, well, I that- not only a pipeline, I think, to China. Yeah. That- you could have done that. But you know what, Duberg, here's what I would say. At BCA Research, you know, I've always, like this was ingrained in me, there's always a so what to the end. You know, we can all sit here hour and a half, we all had a great discussion, but let's, I think what I'm hearing from you and from Luke and I guess from myself is there's going to be a lot of demand for LNG one way or another, but not necessarily LNG as gas, but also LNG as a service. So why don't you Give us all an index of picks and shovels plays in the LNG shipping, construction, all of that. And we basically, all of us, 4,000 of us, put all of our money into that. 
I would go one better, which is to say that um, the domestic natural gas producers most poised to benefit from a convergence of global natural gas prices is American and Canadian, actually, because of Trudeau's uh, insanity. Um, the price of natural gas in Canada is uh, something like um, half of what it is in the U.S. today because it's all stranded. Um, if the global market for natural gas does, in fact, equilibrate around that band of shipping um, and the world still persists in a, a sort of uh, integrated across the globe and energy shortage relative to demand, um, the, the benefactors uh, of that will be the incremental producers uh, in the U.S., who stand poised to really just literally print cash. I mean, you're talking about EQT and SWN. Um, these companies can make a shit ton of money at uh, $5 per million BTU. Uh, if the global price of natural gas equilibrates at 15 or 20, they are woefully underpriced. This is not investment advice. We hold no positions. Uh, we're not in the investing game in public securities. But if this scenario does hold out, and I believe it has to because all arbitrages ultimately close, um, then the position of the, um, the U.S. and Canadian natural gas producers uh, looks extremely advantageous from this perspective. But also, I think shipbuilding as well. I mean, you're pointing out there's there isn't enough LNG. But I mean, that's the margin on shipbuilding, and I mean, you're just talking about literally taking something out of the ground that costs you a buck and a quarter to do and selling it at fourteen dollars on the on the yeah. on the market. I mean, this is there's lots of people that will benefit. You're asking me who is the most prime to benefit? I would say. Um, I would, see, I would say those. And then on the flip side, there's a whole bunch of manufacturing going on in the U.S. today that is back integrated into comparatively very cheap natural gas where they get to price the output of their factories uh, at the global scale that are literally printing money on this spread. And those companies that are really elevated in price today will be the ones that will suffer as equilibrium is established. Well, see, that's very ironic. I mean, your conclusion is is not what the consensus is. The consensus is... Uh, American manufacturing will actually benefit. But that goes back to my point. I mean, America has had an advantage on the cost of energy. And so if that cost goes away because of, like, global price that's set by LNG demand, if that competitiveness goes away, I mean, it's not Europe that suffers over the next decade. It's actually U.S. manufacturing um, outside, obviously, of the energy sector, which you're pointing out. On a relative basis over the next 10 years, sure. But to be clear, those American manufacturers today that do have access to cheap natural gas and can convert it into some solid form that they can export for a global price are printing cash. Um, but like you say, um, trying to think at the next move, um, is the market overpricing their long-term viability versus the, um, you know, the, the, the relatively low cash flow multiples they're assigning to U.S. domestic natural gas producers is an interesting question and, 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 a, and a debate that we could have. Okay, guys. Listen, I want to. Um, I want to pivot, and I, I, I'm going to uh, stop. Wrap this up at the top of the hour for for many reasons. I think you know two hours is plenty on a Friday night in the US and uh, late Friday night in Europe um, for one of these conversations. But I want to pivot and talk a little bit about uh, Europe as a as a project because this is obviously adding to the stresses and strains um, on the European Union that, that much ink has been spilled. And again, I had two conversations recently that that really made me rethink the entire way I look at that project. One of them was with you, Marco, in Santa Monica a couple of months ago, for which I'm eternally grateful. And the other was with um, another good friend of mine, Sir Stephen Wilkinson, who I hope is listening. And Sir Stephen, if you are, if you could like request to speak, I'd love to bring you in on this. But um, while I wait for you to hopefully do that, uh, Marco, l l let's talk about Europe as a, as a political project 
and and what this energy crisis might either bring to the surface or uh, it, it, it seems your 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 sense is that under these crises they actually get get closer knit well i mean as i referenced earlier there was a sovereign debt crisis there was a migration crisis now there's an energy crisis the first two and by the way there were many many other crises in between each yeah. one ends up leading to more integration you know and instead of just shaking our fists and saying that's stupid which may or may not be we just have to acknowledge it like okay that's a fact. Well, so also a fact is if you look at the polling country by country, which I just did literally a couple of days ago in preparation for this, I had a sense of where it was. But, you know, the support for the euro as a currency union is the highest it's ever been across the region. Uh, not in every country. It's at record highs, but it's pretty much very high. So, again, we can shake our fist and say, well, Europeans are sheeple and eventually they'll take the red pill and learn about, you know, the wonders of sovereignty or something like that. And it's like, well, okay, or we can say maybe Europeans who live in Europe have a better gauge of what is appropriate for them. I think that what's happening in Europe is that both elites, but also median voters, are starting to realize that they live in countries that can no longer pursue their national interests as sovereign states, as individual and as individual countries, effectively. Like, Germany may be the most powerful, or France is, if you look at military strength, but fundamentally, they're still at the whim of the much larger regional hegemons, whether it's India, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Iran, whether it's Turkey. Look, I haven't even mentioned China, Russia, and U.S. yet. European member states, individually, their, their collapse as empires, as important regional hegemons, has been, you know, astounding. Two world wars, 100 years of like basically structural decline. And so the integration impulse is not some sort of a Davos conspiracy, which like, you know, people always talk about like, oh, my God, look at these elites. Like, no, no, hold on a second. It's supported by the median voter, by Jacques the plumber. And we instead of like scoffing at it, I think we need to kind of think about why is that so? And I think that's because the median European, median European voter is sophisticated enough to understand that the vagaries of a multipolar environment are very, very um, pessimistic for the future of Europe without some level of integration. And that's why I referenced the 13 colonies of Switzerland as examples of heterogeneous you know, communities, especially the 13 colonies, by the way, in the late uh, 18th century, much more heterogeneous than today. Switzerland, obviously, multilingual. These were entities that had to unite out of fear. And that's a very powerful motivator. Now, what's my empirical evidence of this besides the polling? Well, let's look at the anti-establishment parties, right? Whether it's Marine Le Pen, uh, whether it is the Fratelli d'Italia in Italy, whether it's even alternative for Deutschland or Vox in Spain. I mean, a number of political parties across the European political spectrum have decided to shove their Euroscepticism under the carpet to emphasize other parts of their anti-establishment, whether it's on fiscal policy, whether it's on integration, you know, they can, they can emphasize those. But on Euroscepticism, there's been this real, like, step backwards by a lot of anti-establishment populist parties who are basically catering to that desire by the median voter to retain that part of European trajectory. Uh, and I think that a lot of folks outside of Europe who are kind of fed a steady dose of Anglo-Saxon media which tends to have a Eurosceptic bent for all sorts of reasons that we can, you know, justify geopolitically, but that's nonetheless the case. 
I think they're missing this bigger evolution in Europe, which we just have to respect and then analyze and, and project forward. So, I, yeah, I do think that the solutions will continue to basically be more integrationist than, than not. And so what I would say is that if we're looking for um, part of the financial system that's going to break in the next recession, if we're looking for where the next big crisis is or big bubble is, I wouldn't look at Europe. You know, it's like kind of, um, you know, hiding in a sort of a, like, in a place where like an artillery shell exploded. You want to go where it blew up because another one's not going to land there. Uh, history doesn't really repeat itself. It just rhymes. And I think the euro area crisis solved the fundamental reason, the fundamental problem, which is why the BTP went to 13% in 2011. And that fundamental question that investors were asking was, are you guys a political entity or not? That is resolved. They are. Um, and I don't think that the euro area is going to be the place where, you know, things break this time around. So if Luke is right, there's a big recession. If, you know, uh, GMO is right, a lot of folks out there who are saying, like, look, there's a huge calamity coming. I don't think it's coming in 2023, but let's say it is. I don't think the euro area will be the place that breaks. I think it'll be other places. It's really interesting, Mark, you bring up about the, you know, the project and the, and the, and the momentum uh, that is happening because it, it it really brings up a paradox, which is if the if the Europeans want sovereignty, they have to have energy sovereignty. Paradoxically, if they want energy sovereignty, they have to go with the Russians, not the Americans. Because if they go with the Americans, they're never going to be energy sovereign. They're going to have to pay in dollars, and they're going to be beholden to us. Versus, hey, we'll let you pay in euros if you're if you're if you're Putin. It's it's fascinating. It just grabbed me as you were saying that that there it's 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 very paradoxical, and I don't know sort of what you know if it it'll be difficult to get energy sovereign if you're Europe in the current environment, um, which which might be the goal of of, of some of all of this uh, on certain parties' parts. Well, let me just say two things really quickly, Luke. You said that before as well, and I respect it. I would just say it like this. United States of America was a was a global hegemon without being energy sovereign. You know, so like you you can be an effective geopolitical regional power without being energy sovereign. Like it has happened before. Well, only because we could print energy. We could print dollars for the energy we were importing. We were when we became the sovereign, we were the biggest oil producer in the world. 1970. Uh, Volcker was tasked by Kissinger with trying to figure out how the United States could remain hegemonic, uh, 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 Volcker's words, uh, yeah. remain hegemonic while still running, while running ever increasing deficits. And that was that was the, the that was the, the the baseline of the petrodollar system, which was we'll just recycle other people's we'll recycle other people's uh, surpluses and we'll remain hegemonic. That well, you just. You just answered the question, though, how Europe can do that. It, it offers an alternative to countries like Russia. So, yes, that was my second point, which is the second point you're saying is like, well, Europe is going to have to go with Russia. And that's where my constraint framework comes in. Like, I get that they don't like what's happening in Ukraine, but hey, it's in stasis. Eventually, they're going to have to go back to Russia and make a yes, deal. I agree and, 100%. Yeah. And, and let me just say one point on, on, the, on, on that. Like 1980s, early 1980s were late 1970s. We're really like crazy time in the Cold War. I mean, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, there was a period of detente, but then it broke. Reagan shows up, says, tear down their wall. Boom, boom, boom. We got a bunch of crises. What are the Europeans doing during this time? 
supposed main allies of the U.S. against the Soviet Union, they're building pipelines. You know? <laughs> and, and I, you know, like there's some great archive documents where you can see Ronald Reagan and his administration basically being like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, do you not understand that we're at the height of the Cold War? We're about to break the Soviet Union. And you're tossing them a lifeline, a pipeline, literally. And so that's a great example when people tell me, like, Marco, it's gone too far. Putin has crossed too many red lines. I'm like, really? Because the Soviet Union was literally threatening nuclear holocaust against the Western world. And the Europeans were like, eh, off politic. Let's build some pipelines. <laughs> it's a great point. And it's, you know, it's something I've said before is, is Trump was many things, but one of his charms was that he would sometimes accidentally tell you the truth. And there was that <laughs> great scene on CNBC in 2018 where he's sitting down with the Germans and they had a hot mic. And he said, listen, you're it was the same kind of thing like you just said that Reagan said. We're, we're protecting you from the Russians, and you're buying all this gas from the Russians. And I'm all for free trade, but energy trade is very different than normal trade, which I think was him saying, it's all about the dollar. We can't have you buying all that Nord Stream 2 gas and euros and getting free from us. All of a sudden, you don't need us. And I, I think I think a lot more of this has to do with the the. What, how the energy is denominated and European energy sovereignty uh, and a lot less about um, some of the other things that are often attributed to being more about. Okay, let, let me, um, uh, so Stephen Wilkinson's joined us. I want to bring him in um, and to t- because you know, one of the, the overarching narratives in Western media, particularly about the European Union, has been the strength of Germany at the heart of it, uh, Germany's um, place in the Union as a kind of beacon of fiscal propriety and how they would not allow inflation to take hold. And Stephen and I sat down for a conversation uh, on the podcast uh, a month or so ago uh, after I wrote a piece about Europe um, called Apocalypse Then. And he took me to task for, for all the mistakes I'd made in, in the piece I'd written. But after that conversation, I had a, a completely different view on Germany's place uh, in the European Union. And a lot of the reasons for that are decisions that um, Germany has made, or rather Frau Merkel made in her time in office, around energy. So, Stephen, if, if, you, could, if you could unmute yourself and perhaps um, uh, talk a little bit about Germany. Stephen... Uh, has a Substack, um, which you should absolutely follow. Good and Prosper uh, is his website, and his writing is absolutely fantastic. I have to say, um, it's some of the best writing you'll read anywhere. And Stephen's background is almost 30 years in Germany, so his understanding of the German business culture and the German psyche is is certainly way better than mine, and I'm sure better than many people on this. So, Stephen, if you, if you wouldn't mind – just giving us um, uh, the kind of cliff notes on on that conversation we had about Germany's place in Europe. Uh, I will. Thank you, um, Grant. And it, it is reflecting on the conversation over the last one and a half hours. Um, I realise that my main qualification for being asked to speak is the fact that I've been consistently wrong on the euro for the last... <laughs> well, you're in good company. <laughs> 30 years. Um, and listening to Marco, who um, I have been following for... A couple of months intensely since your documentary film with him and whose um, median voter meme really captured my imagination and allowed me to think about particularly Germany in a, in a different way. 
was the trigger for my response to your piece, which was that this idea that the the median German voter, the German citizen, has this um, anti-inflationary um, piece of DNA embedded in them that will spring to life at the moment that any sense of hyperinflation threatens their prosperity is wrong or is now wrong because the medium German voter has replaced fear of inflation, which was a sort of their parents' bugbear, with a loyalty to the European idea. And I would wholeheartedly agree with Marco's most, um, his last comment, that that is now true. Um, However, I would also say that listening to your conversation, um, I've realized that geopolitics is storytelling and business is maths. And there is a an element to this energy crisis that does not, that, that will not defy mathematics in business. Um, and the, the reality is that if if Europe is going to go um, deeper in its integration process, and nothing that Marco has said it really can be contradicted because it, it is true and it has happened at every single crisis that that, that urge to integrate further, for whatever reason, um, it has been manifested, then it is also true that Europe becomes economically and structurally weaker every time it does it. Um, and I've just come back from New Orleans, literally landed a couple of hours ago, and I was in the taxi driving to the centre of New Orleans from the Louis Armstrong Airport, and the taxi driver who'd arrived there, I think, with his family from Pakistan in 2002 or three, so a couple of years before Katrina, had told me that um, an interesting background story, that, um, that prior to Katrina there had been three years in which Around about the same time every year, the um, the city had announced an evacuation because of the oncoming hurricane, and it hadn't happened. The city had been evacuated. Everybody came back. All the shops were had been had toilet paper sold out, and all the other things that people do when they're evacuating. And this had happened three years in a row, and then the Katrina year, two thousand and five, they did exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, and people said, "Now nah, you know what? We're going to stay at home this time." Um, and that, I think, is going to be the story of Europe now. Whether Europe disintegrates slowly and disappears off the scene, as Marco seems to suggest, that the big action will be somewhere else, or that it will break and cause action somewhere else. I don't know. Um, That's storytelling, and I have no idea. But what I do know is that this latest round of energy increases is hitting the heart of German manufacturing very hard. Now, I'll just take an example of a couple of factories that I'm um, close to and involved with and know um, I know their, their balance sheets and P&Ls very well. They look different to the balance sheets and P&Ls of the companies that um, you will be studying if you're a public equity analyst um, or an investor. And they they've just had three years of of complete disruption in which 
for various reasons, COVID and then supply chains and now energy, their business model has been upended. And every time they've been subsidized by the state, the um, 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 Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, KFW, has done a sterling job of sort of pumping money into the Mittelstand. But it doesn't alter the fact that every single one of those um, loan programs, debt programs, call them what you will, have been debt financing. They've been financing deficits and not financing investment, simply because German businesses have had to shut down and had to stop producing or stop selling or stop shipping. Um, and the the energy prices are real. You know, the most German businesses will tend to buy their energy on one to two year contracts. Um, they tend to set or reset in the third, in the fourth quarter, so October, November, and December. Um, we had an incident in one of the factories and one of the businesses um, that I am involved with last year, in which the local Stadtwerk, where they bought their energy from, had their energy contract with, went bankrupt in um, declared insolvency in October, um, and they were left. You know, they had a contract that was illegally binding but if your if your counterparty is bankrupt or insolvent well then you just have to get in line and see what you can get from the um from the administrator which is nothing but in the meantime you have to fix a new contract now that new contract was fixed for two years at a much higher price it cost the company a third of its annual um Bill, so it was a four hundred or five hundred thousand extra that it had to pay on a one point two, one point three million energy bill, which is roughly four to five percent of revenue, um, and it's now set for two years. But that is a um, if it had to reset. If, for instance, the new supplier, who I imagine these Stadtwerke, um, these energy contractors, they operate a little bit like banks. In other words, they are, they tend to sell short um, and or sell long-term contracts and buy it in at a short-term basis. So that, that, that negative spread is impacting them significantly. Um, so the, their counterparties are, are continue to be weak. Now, they may well be bailed out with the German government. They may well be as we go into winter. Um, and there'll be plenty of companies resetting in October, November, and December for new 12 or 24-month contracts. And that, as I say, it may not lead to a wave of insolvencies um, if the German government decides to jump in and save the Mittelstand by giving some sort of credit or loan or reactivating the um, the KfV Mittelstand programs, but it's certainly not making the country any stronger. And at some point, this crisis, the next crisis, um, it will be fatal for um, for German industry. And I know a number of um, owners of German Mittelstand businesses who are in the metal bashing and manufacturing business who are simply giving up. They, you know, they're maybe seventy-five or eighty, and they've been, they've had a long productive life, and they've made most of their money in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Um, and life since two thousand and eight has just been bloody miserable. Um, and we've had one crisis after another on a rolling annual basis. This is the latest one in twenty twenty-two. Um, 
all the things that look like constants um, have suddenly turned into extremely volatile variables, and it's just no fun anymore. And you mustn't forget that most, um, although these Mittelstand companies are heralded as being family-owned and run, 50% of them have um, non-owner managing directors who are personally liable for um, for trading in insolvency the moment that those those electricity prices reset they will be technically insolvent unless there is some way of having a non-recourse loan and they will be going to their insolvency they will be going into insolvency administration immediately because they don't want to take the personal liability so german insolvency law is very strict um, it doesn't give very much wiggle room, um, and the moment that you know that you have a um, a situation where you cannot um, you cannot pay any more, you are technically insolvent. Then you've got exactly twenty one days to go to court um, and file for insolvency. And the moment that that happens, the business, most businesses are as good as finished. So that's the situation we're in at the moment. Um, I have been listening with great interest to this conversation. Um, but whatever, however this plays out in 12 to 18 months, and I can't disagree with any of it, it doesn't alter the fact that it, electricity bills are going to be have to pay by businesses in the next six to eight weeks, and unless a solution... And that, unfortunately, is where things ended. We had a, we had a technical glitch, and our Twitter space died of natural causes rather suddenly, uh, which is a real shame. You know, Stephen coming in there, um, I had so many people email me after saying, I really wanted to hear the end of what Stephen was saying. Um, yeah, that perspective on Germany was just a, a great bonus, really. We weren't expecting to have Stephen there. And it was great that he could come on and, you know, the conversation naturally took us towards Germany. And I, and I think what he had to say is fascinating, given Germany's importance in the EU. And, and one would think the importance of them in the decision-making process around the energy components, do me, but all is not well in, in, in the fatherland by the look of things. No, and I would say, you know, the old adage is always leave the audience wanting more, but that was a little, yeah. uh, that was a little blunt of, a, of an instrument for us to use there, but it was, of course, a freak of technology, but really fascinating stuff. And uh, for the listeners of your podcast who have heard his most recent appearance uh, on your show, luckily um, they will have um, heard the thesis that he laid out so brilliantly uh, on your podcast. Um, and which is where he was going uh, on the Twitter spaces, as you mentioned. But uh, really fantastic discussion and, you know, um, it's a unique form. Um, the ability to have people jump up and ask questions um, live was great, although with that many people listening, uh, yeah, it was kind of tricky. tricky. Um, you know, just some, st some statistics, really amazing, um, approaching almost 200,000 listens of this uh, Twitter spaces, which has to be some kind of a record, at least uh, for FinTwit. Uh, just goes to show you, um, how um, the topic is uh, perfect uh, for the moment, and also I think the forum, um, the, the polite discussion, the uh, allowing others to finish their thoughts, um, challenging each other politely, agreeing to disagree, um, perhaps changing a few minds along the way. Uh, this is what discourse should be. It's still possible even in 2022, and kudos for you for putting it together. It was a real pleasure to participate in it. Well, kudos to both of us. You, you were a big part of that, and uh, I, it definitely wouldn't have happened without you. Well, listen, for those of you who have listened and, and didn't quite catch it, the place to follow our guests, if you want to follow Luke, you'll find him on Twitter, at Luke Groman, G-R-O-M-E-N. Uh, his website is fftt-llc.com. 
Uh, Marco Papic is at geo, G-E-O underscore Papic, P-A-P-I-C. And his website is clocktowergroup.com. And uh, I'll leave you to do yourself, Dumi. And Sir Stephen Wilkinson also joined us. You'll find him goodandprosper.substack.com is his website for the Pitchfork Papers. And on Twitter, he is at SKN Wilkinson. Yes, and of course, we're at doomberg.substack.com. And on Twitter, at doombergt. Um, but you all probably know that by now. It was real, really great, Grant, and uh, looking forward to uh, the next incarnation. Dumi, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again sometime, I'm sure. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.